Well, it is finally here. Episode one of 2024. I hope everyone's had a nice little break. Maybe some of you are still on a bit of a break, but we're back. We've had the most incredible and sometimes eye-opening, but no, we've met the most incredible people across um, northern New South Wales and southern Queensland over the first couple of weeks of this year. And today we have a really awesome and exciting episode. It's the first one we've done with the son of someone who's been on our podcast, um, Fritz Bolton. You guys might remember a couple of years ago, we sat down with Froker Bolton Boschhammer from the Kimberley. Her story of what her family went through and what they've done with Kimberley Fine Diamonds was incredible. And now as part of our partnership with Nuffield Australia, we're bringing Fritz's story to life. At the age of 11, Fritz landed in the East Kimberley in Kanadara. He was unable to speak a word of English and this new community and vast expanse of the Australian outback would be this young German boy's new home and a place that would impact and shape his life. If you remember Froker's episode, she talked about losing her husband well. Fritz lost his father as well as his brother. In this episode, he talks about what it was like going through that grief and actually the burden that potentially came with trying to carry on someone else's legacy and dreams. He talks openly about succession and the opportunities that his business has created for both family but also non-family members to pursue their own personal aspirations as well. So, for episode one, 2024, let's get into it. You're our first mother-son duo. We had your mum, Froker Alton Boschhammer, on, well, a couple of years ago now, and heard her story. And I'm excited to sit down as part of our collaboration with the Nuffield Scholarship to hear yours and everything that you're up to, mate. But how have you been? Yeah, it's been an incredible couple of years for us. Having done the Nuffield has, has certainly been um, very unexpected and very, very humbling. Yeah, there's a lot of changes happening here, particularly now with a, with a change of farming um, transitioning to cotton. Yeah, I think at the moment I'm pretty worn out but excited about Christmas and excited about the wet season and, and what's up ahead. Mm, it's exciting. How have you gone juggling the requirements of what Nuffield involves of global travel alongside keeping the business and everything going back home? Yeah, so I think firstly the most exciting thing about or one of the most rewarding things about the Nuffield was actually just even doing the application and the first couple of interviews, I, I would have been pretty happy even just with that. But walking away from the business and essentially handing over my baby has been, I think, really positive, not only for myself and my relationship with my wife and the rest of the family, but also for Aaron, who's taken over running the farm. So we've got a couple of kids. One's a midwife, just moved back to Kanara, just with her husband, which is pretty awesome, and a son that wants to be a vet. So he's uh, studying very hard at the moment. I've got Aaron, who's a a young farmer that wants to make decisions and is passionate about farming. And so to be giving him the opportunity and being a part of that has been um, challenging and extremely rewarding and beautiful for both of us. The key for me has been to hand over the day-to-day operations of the farm and to come back to the farm and take instructions from Aaron, who's my operations manager. Quite humbling, wouldn't it? Because there would have been times, I, I presume, when you were travelling that you wouldn't have even had service and the likes to make some of those decisions, which he would have just been empowered to make. Yeah, probably. And the hardest is when he makes better decisions than I could have. 
that really sucks and it's really <laughs> and it's really rewarding at the same time it's quite an interesting emotion when you go through that i tell you yeah because you've enabled someone to do your job and hopefully they still need you but to have seen him make decisions that are better than mine is yeah quite incredible scary as well talk mm. me through that more because it's actually something i'm super fascinated in fritz in and around this because naturally I, I presume that your role and everything that you do continues to evolve anyway but that the task pieces that you have probably always done that aaron's then in and doing a better job from you what's that like and how have you balanced that so i think the key is when i think he's not doing as good a job as me or when i think he's making a mistake i still let him do it and it's been a, a big awakening or a big wake-up call that the reality is that when you're working as a team together and you trust each other everything's so much easier and so much better the the end result and that's what we what we focus on not necessarily the journey but the the end result is there and, and sometimes we tend to focus on that moment when everything's going wrong and and you you would have done it differently but then to to, to step away from that and see the big picture is really really rewarding and critical and really hard at times. So because you've been there and lived it, I really want to understand at times where you're in that moment and you see, I won't say things falling apart, but you, yeah, you see some of these fractures and things happening. How did you make sure that you pulled yourself back and didn't step in to fix it then and there? Well, I reminded myself of the faith that I have in, in Aaron. I also saw that's how I was treated. When I stepped into the farm after I'd been to uni, um, you know, Rob was running everything and he he let me make mistakes and he backed me up with that and saw that succession and i saw the wonderful relationship that that developed that's uh, it's really really easy to copy an example yeah for sure no it's interesting because i think so many people would find themselves in it at different stages of their business journey the other thing i wanted to chat to you about and ask yeah. you that you mentioned so your daughter's come back to kananara as a midwife alongside her her partner or husband, husband but yeah. that makes you guys third generation yeah. in Kananara and that's yeah. especially cool given that you guys really in the scheme of things haven't been there that long yeah so that I always say the one thing that's missing in Kananara are grandparents and it is really hard living here because I think it attracts really incredible people and people that like adventure and risk and extremes and the type of people that are up here are, are pretty special anyway but when they stay a bit longer I think that's even more beautiful but it, it's quite unexpected that, that Kim and Rhodes moved back up here. But they, uh, as soon as they, they, was, they studied in Perth and, and realised that they really liked the country and, and the people here, I think. The freedom, you can't just go 10 minutes drive and you're in the bush or out in the river. How's Kununurra changed in the time that you've been there? It's been 30-odd years, hasn't it? Nearly up to 43. So when we first came to Kununurra, Wyndham was bigger. In Kananara, that, that's where the hospital was, and that's where all the people were. I mean, where the where the main supermarket is in the centre of town now. That I remember corroborees being held there, like it was just bush being cut off every wet season. Going from picking fresh milk up from the neighbour a kilometre away to having powdered milk was um, quite interesting. But yeah, so that the and the community was so close. I don't think it's quite as nice a community now as what it was, but everybody was definitely at the beginning really happily relied on each other 
and supportive of each other. You certainly don't fall. And yeah, I don't even think you fall through the gaps in the community now, but then even less so. So what does the town mean to you now? Oh, it's home. I'm really passionate about it now and where it's going to be in the future. And it's ever evolving and changing. I'm pretty, can't even imagine where it's going to be in the next 10 or 20 years, but I'm really hoping that it will be a strong, healthy, vibrant community. That's really what town's about for me, having that cohesion and the resilience and the safety of an isolated country community. When you turned up there, you're an 11-year-old. I just remember your mum vividly saying on the plane, uh, I think she was thinking, what on earth have I got myself into as she was coming into Kununurra? But for you, you weren't speaking a word of English at that time. No, it was... um... We actually had a bit of a deja vu moment a couple of weeks ago. There was a assistant church minister that turned up. They moved from Tasmania to Kanara. We were there to greet them. It was a hot, hot, hot day, like as hot and humid as it can be. And I could see them walk off that plane and thinking, what is this? Like, how can anybody live here? And it was a bit the same. It was exactly the same when we walked off the plane 43 years ago. Early April, we had a bit of a sun shower, so all the luggage got wet and we were just, it was hot and steamy. And I remember getting into a car and it just burning my legs because the seats were so hot. And it was quite an adventure. I think it about a hundred times easier for us as kids and for our parents. But yeah, look, not speaking English when we first went to school, that's a bit different. I remember getting on the school bus for the first time and I'd, so I'd practiced a little bit and I said, hello, this is my sister, Margaret. My name is Fritz. And they all started laughing. It wasn't a good moment, but today it's, um, I think it's quite rewarding that we survived that. And I don't think anything malicious was meant by it, but it's incredible what we can survive and how good we can remember those awful moments. It's really important to remember. Your old man was like a fair visionary coming out here all those many years ago. Do you think, like he saw potential in that, in the area, especially in and around the Ord there, but do you think? what the farming systems have evolved to like he could have even imagined yeah and no, i think he imagined that that's why he came and then, yeah i mean he was a, just a pioneer through and through a visionary and he was just probably 20 years too early i think he really loved risks as well and i think he saw some of that when we lived in rhodesia just be, just at the start of the civil war and i remember mum telling a story of they went back in 74 or 75 so just Sort of the ward started for two or three years, and they were visiting Victoria Falls. And on the way back, they picked up a hitchhiker. Now, I know that my dad knew that this hitchhiker would have been a terrorist. And he just did it for the thrill of it, and he wanted to help this guy, and he he wanted to see what would happen. <laughs> and he he was confident enough that he could probably handle that situation. Now, I'm not in that same category, but that's the sort of personality he was. Um, <laughs> absolutely. There has to be a level of madness to do, to do some of that. And, and I'll say that in a loving, respectful way. I think we need those sort of people around us all the time to help us grow and, and implement change and be better at what we're doing. Mm. <laughs> but, well, <laughs> yeah, it's wild. <laughs> I think I'm probably closer to you, Fritz. I don't think I'd be quite as brave as what your old man was there. <laughs> Yeah. Did you see a future for farming? So you, you then moved off to Perth. You were fluent in English by this stage. So you're, you're headed off to Perth to boarding school. 
did you want to get back to Kananara and go farming or, or were you pretty open to those different scenarios and what might evolve? Yeah, look, I think I was absolutely driven because of, so I, um, it was only six, seven weeks after dad died that I went to boarding school and it was his dream to develop these farms up here and develop or, or be a part of this community. You know, if he, because he died of suicide, it was something I was just so determined and driven to continue that. But I also, in my heart, I knew absolutely that I was a passionate. I was passionate about agriculture and farming and and the soil and in a lot of ways, it it just cemented my pathway and and I think I had it so easy because I knew I just knew what I had to do and what I had to do was what I wanted to do. It synchronized, which it doesn't always happen. But I was anyway. I was very grateful for that journey, or that I knew exactly where where it was where I wanted to head. Mm. Do you think, and I'm trying to think how to word this question, so if it comes out wrong, I apologise, but <laughs> like, do, you think, do you think your dad, like, he knew what was possible and what could be created? There were, for various reasons, a few too many steps in there that he couldn't quite grasp. But for you, have you kind of grabbed his vision and then evolved it? Or was he just, I'll, I'll say, that far ahead in terms of what was possible and you've just worked out the ways to put the rungs in the ladder to actually get there? I think dad was... And we've done it as a team, you know, particularly Rob and I work together really, really well. And he's not unlike my dad and he's a visionary and has got a level of madness about him that's really lovable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He comes up with our best ideas and the worst ideas. And I say that to him quite openly. He doesn't agree with me, but <laughs> I think a couple of things that, that he did, he he didn't have a lot of patience. He went big fairly quickly. He just went large scale too fast. And I think he really underestimated the climate. Physically living here in October, November, December, and um, through the wet season is the edge of what is possible. And it's a lot easier now. There's air conditioning everywhere and we can jump on a plane and go to Perth if need be, or even work cars are air conditioned. So it's pretty easy from that perspective but i think those are a couple of things he underestimated and and just couldn't see out of that and heading off to boarding school after well only six or seven weeks like it must have been bloody tough like how how'd you go being distanced from the rest of your family oh no they're not the best years of my life so i really um i really only started growing when i left boarding school and then i came i did the 11 and 12 so i was a, an outsider and my name was Fritz, so <laughs> no one knew my three. Like a lot of a lot of people didn't know that my father had just passed away, let alone through suicide and well, counselling. There was no such thing. So yeah, it was a really, really, really tough time. I remember a, a friend from from boarding school visiting us. He'd, he'd actually just done the canning stock route on a motorbike, which is quite a feat. And Spanner rocked up at our house and I opened the door and he looked at me and he looked up and he said, Crikey, if you'd been that size, we wouldn't have teased you so much in boarding school. <laughs> so, yeah, and it was, um, it was actually really good to, 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 um, to hear that. But again, I, I think, I think that's, that's life. Life's not necessarily always fair or, or nice, but we need, to, we need to really focus on the moments when when it is and when we are 
filled with joy and and uh, endless energy. Hunt for those moments. Tell me a little bit about your mum during this time, because you guys were running several farms at the time. A, a bunch of young kids, or at least teenage kids, were were running around at foot. Um, how did she she go? Just from your perspective, how did she go grabbing all those challenges and turning them into opportunities in the end? Yeah, just the courage. I think it still blows me away now. What she could have packed packed up and gone back to Germany and had a pretty comfortable life there. Um, and you know, and she also had to sell some property. And she actually leased most of the farms out for very little money, basically just for shire rates and water rates. There wasn't much in it. But I think for me, the what, what, what I found most encouraging is how Rob then came on the scene and Rob and mum were courageous enough to, to start a relationship and get married. Um, you know, that's, that's pretty special. And mum probably won't like me saying this, but I think... For Rob to engage or become part of a family that was broken at that time, you know, it was it was really really sad that we lost Dad, and we we all loved him, and we didn't want to lose him. And there was a, you know, Peter and Maria were only little kids. If or Maria was an infant, so but Rob fell in love with all of us, and Mum, and vice versa, and you know, it, it really filled a gap really quickly but I think also uh, they developed a really or, or mum developed her Christian faith really strongly which is um that was something that really really helped and carried us through but yeah that the for people that are listening to this that are feeling discouraged just be courageous and keep going it can only get better and that's something that I've really learned from my mother she has a remarkable story in her own so when you move back home after boarding school like Rob had a really important role in helping shape your farming interests, but also you as a, a young fella into a man and, and through that growth spurt as well. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and look, and for me, probably what, what was really gave me a lot of peace, not only did I know that Rob was there for me if I needed a father figure, and I often introduce him as my father because I, it's a lot less complicated and it shows my other... Uh, love and respect for for Rob, but Rob became a father to particularly Peter and Maria, and that was something that no, I'm quite emotional even thinking about it now because I'd had that father figure, and I adored my father so much. I knew that at least I could get that again. That was a really, really special thing for me to see that. Mm. It's so special and so cool. Mm. Absolutely cool. Now, we had such a big gap in our family, and that was essentially filled and very special. But I think, and, and really unique to have such a good, a good part of that story. Mm. I'd have to find the, the part in the episode with your mum where she mentions staying in, in Kananara and the options that were ahead. But I think it really did come down to you kids, wasn't it? And the, the opportunities that were available there. Yeah, I think she, she'll talk about she didn't want pity. She didn't want that for us. And Dad had given so much, she felt she wanted to keep that going or help fulfill his dream. Now, I think it's really, and I've come to the realisation too, it can be quite quite toxic when you're trying to fulfill someone else's dream or even finding a dream 
got to be you got to be a little bit careful like it was definitely my passion but it's not my wife's passion to fulfill my dad's dream and not my children's passion to fulfill his dream so so you have to tone it down a bit and and be a little bit selfless or um, like it can be all consuming you can use that as an excuse for inappropriate or bad behavior or or habits as well so got to be a bit careful of that too I've got a question on the next gen piece because you've got one son who's off studying vet and building that career, a daughter about to turn return to the area as a midwife. No, no, she's back. Yeah. Oh, she's well and truly back. She's already. So, yeah, yeah. Were you always open to yeah potentially that the farming opportunities finishing like closing out with you and and going oh well the kids are interested in other things that's totally fine. So I always wanted the kids to do something that they were good at. And that they enjoyed and that challenged them, and I've well, and I never pushed them to become a farmer. I wanted them to be, and and I think you know our daughter in particular would have been an incredibly good farmer, and who knows, she might still be. You know, and I think Rick is Rick is going to be an incredibly good vet. But look, I have that that opportunity now to do that sort of work with Aaron. Um, you know, he's not my son, and he's never going to be my son. But if he was. The sort of opportunities we'd be like we'd be supporting each other through this journey, and I and I know that I physically I can't keep going the way I have been. So I needed I needed someone to to step in and help me with taking the load and making the decisions. So and it's probably a bit selfish because that's also then a way where I can I can be involved and hopefully pass on my experience for for a lot longer than what I'm what I would have normally done if I kept farming into my late 60s or something i don't reckon it's selfish i reckon it's yeah well, i'd say it's, it's absolutely not selfish at all it, it creates the opportunities to to keep having an impact and and but also then allowing someone else to create their own pathways but with the wisdom and knowledge that you've been able to accrue over your lifetime so far of farming yeah and but it is my passion it's not farming it's not necessarily andrew's passion so there there's a the middle there's a middle ground but hopefully I'll be able to be involved in in farming for a lot longer through this path, even if it's not with it, with our children. For sure. But, and it's interesting, when we talk about potentially selling the farm, Betty Rick, holy moly, does he burr up. Like he's so connected to the farm. He's just made a layout, which is pretty exciting. <laughs> and incidentally, he's, he's... It is? Oh. He says he wants to move back to Kanaro when he's, when he's finished again. I know he fundamentally does but depends on who his partner might be and what the family circumstances are then time will tell mm. farming in australia is never without opportunity nor its challenges from season to season and from day to day producers manage a variety of risks and rewards as they produce the vast range of commodities global markets are now demanding anz have been supporting aussie farmers to take opportunities and manage through challenges for over 150 years. They're a proud and long-term partner of Nuffield Australia, supporting its goal of capacity building for producers, their businesses, industry and rural community. Their network of regionally based agribusiness bankers are ready to support both their existing customers and any farming businesses seeking a review of their banking arrangements at any time. Find your local ANZ agribusiness manager at anz.com. I want to ask you a few questions about your Nuffield. I think on your your topic is quite niche, and I don't know how many 
questions or answers I'll have on it. But so you, your topic was looking at solutions to executing time sensitive operations on heavy wet soils during monsoon weather conditions. Mm. Starting at the end, did you work out and find these solutions? Well, we're we're working through some of those solutions now. Firstly, I think it's a it was something we've got to try and plant cotton in February. That's just when when we'll have the maximum amount of sunlight and day degree temperature related climatic conditions during biofill. Now, February, we never did it. We, you can't do any farming. It's just an impossibility. And so we have to have a real paradigm shift. And But I'd learned about paradigm shifts from doing work with the right mind. And the late Dave Handel and, and Jill Rigby taught us a lot on how to implement paradigm shift and and so you know it's anything is possible i think it will happen and and i'd really hope that we'd find like you know have a cover crop that can just dry the soil out and then you just go in there and plant or or have a little robot that can do the job or or soil amelioration and and um a bit better drainage or a few things like that but yeah what really became apparent is that if we actually all work together and collaborated, we could get the job done easily. But you've got to let go of egos. You've got to really trust others that they've also got your best interests at heart. It's pretty hard to let go of egos. My planter is better than my neighbours, I always say. And it is. <laughs> and therein lies the problem. <laughs> if we can pull this off and start really collaborating and working together on our and our little farming community, it will just notch up so many levels to not just getting the crop in the ground, but so many other incredible things that are both well, have positive economic impact, but also social impacts, I think. Do you not agree, though, Fritz, that you've already done it, in, like created that environment for collaboration on your own farm with what you've been through with Aaron and I guess that balance of ego in terms of letting it, it go? It's just how do you then allow others to do that? But, you know, the level of trust that Aaron gives me and that I give him is, I think, to a level of father-son. So that's quite unique. The level of trust with my neighbours can never be the same, I don't think, and that, or maybe it should be. But, um, but I think, yeah, building that collaboration within our farm has really set a really good foundation. But, you know, we've collaborated in the past a fair bit. That's Rob's, that's really foundations that Rob has, Rob has set. Um, like we used to grow horticulture with a neighbour and that was really the, the most, that was so exciting and worked so well. And when we worked with the Crutes, you know, it was selfless. It was a win-win. It was not them and us. It was it was us. And we, we worked with our strengths and complemented our weaknesses or fill the gaps where our weaknesses were, rather. Did you find yourself as your studies went on that you refined and, and look, looked less for the mechanical solutions as opposed to how businesses had enabled that trust building amongst stakeholders or communities had built trust amongst stakeholders to, to get ahead and make change? Like, did that evolve? Yes, yeah, I certainly started looking at, at, how, at how people started making decisions and examples of how people handled extremes, and it was when I when I was on that on the Amish farm in in Canada. It wasn't instant, but it took a 
it really touched me how they worked together. Yeah, and, and I didn't particularly like the way women were, were they seemed to be dominated. Children did exactly as they were told. Didn't particularly like that. But what what I saw was there was still a level of happiness and joy and productivity that I hadn't really noticed in other settings. And everybody had each other's back. I saw that in so many places. I saw that in Germany where they where they've got setups where they facilitate machinery operations and and services or yeah, I saw it in, in the US where people um certain ways how they how they get staff, sometimes legal, sometimes illegal. But always there was always that win win in the in the solution. Was and it was always it was always about people. If you get the if you get the people thing right, then you're gonna win. Yeah, the people, the people, the people. So did you find yourself coming back home and implementing things or have you really needed time to kind of sit and ruminate on what you actually saw around the world and start to work on ways of bringing your community together? Well, Aaron wouldn't let me do the work I wanted to do, so I had to ruminate on it, yes. <laughs> no, we, we, we've definitely implemented and are implementing things to facilitate all of this. I mean, some of the machinery and agronomic things are, are happening at the moment. We're just about to start. Just had some rain on the weekend, but um, when it gets dry, we'll we'll put some of this crop shielding stuff in So see if that helps with our soils and our ability to plant. We've certainly changed a lot of machinery around and the whole structure around drainage and et cetera. But we've made an effort to, to go out of our way to work in with our neighbours as well and, and really showcase how, how much of a win-win it is to, to work together. That was a lot of fun. And, and sometimes you think, oh, well, there's more take than give. It's when you, you need to remove yourself from the moment then and, and again see that big picture. Been pretty, yeah, it's been rewarding and it's worked. We just need to upscale it a bit now. You mentioned a few of those different learnings from those different regions. And I, I went to a Hutterite farm when I was working in Davidson, well, in Saskatchewan in Canada. And I tell you, it was the most mind-blowing thing ever in terms of how they, how they set it up. But was there a significant moment on the whole program that really, I guess, has, has shaped you and, and sits at the top? Yeah, it was that, it was that moment with the Amish and just seeing how how well they worked together, how much faith they had. Like, I mean, the, the Christian faith is was a cornerstone to them, knowing that ultimately God had that control and that's something that kept them going together. But that took me quite a long time to realise that that was the, the light bulb moment, probably even a couple of months, to be honest. But yeah, it just blew me away. The level of confidence that it gave that little community or that family that they're all working together that they're on the same song sheet. It's incredible. So I've got one other question just on that, Fritz, and, and I don't know if it's if you've got one that's top of mind or if it's if it's an easy or hard answer, but anyway, we'll find out. If you had the chance to apply for a Nuffield again, but you couldn't choose the same topic, knowing what you know now, what do you think you'd pick as your topic or area that you'd be keen to look into? Yeah, I've often dreamt of doing the Nuffielder a second time because I think you'd get so much more out of it because we've had a bit of practice. I think, Ollie, that's too hard a question. I think one of the things that Nuffield does, any type of, of that sort of network of people that stretch your imagination, it, it just, yeah, it opens you up to so many things that you never thought was possible. It makes you 
a lot less judgmental. So you're, so you're open to a lot more out there opinions and you listen to mad people a lot more or different people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I, you know, if I think if I had to do another Nuffield scholarship, it would be how do you ready yourself for, for learning? How do you keep your mind open and execute those new learnings, those paradigm shifts, those, those new pathways for your business and your life and your family and your community? Because I think most people struggle with change. You know, how do you implement change? Be in that sort of direction. If I was to apply for one, and as I was thinking through that application process of trying to choose a topic and all of that, what would be your advice to someone like myself? I think still the most important thing that I did was actually write the application. Um, it was like a little strategic plan for me, and I just had a go at it, and I thought about it, and I changed it a few times. And then when I finished, I was quite chuffed with, with what I had. And you've got to remember, I think most people that will have a go at an Uffield scholarship will think, no, I'm not good enough for this. And they're exactly the people Nuffield wants. That 99% of Nuffields think they're imposters. And in my example, um, there's two categories that you had to meet to apply. One was you had to be younger than 45 and you had to be an Australian citizen. Now, I had started my, the process of becoming an Australian citizen at that stage. And I, I've been putting it off because it's a pain in the backside to do that, that sort of bureaucratic stuff. I don't like it. And, and I, wanted, <laughs> I wanted the kids to be able to have a dual, dual citizenship. So not only was I was not a citizen and I was too old, but I had I use a, I use a mentor to bounce things off of all the time. And, and Chris really said to me, no, you are doing this. Never mind what the what the limitations are, this is this is what's going to be good for you. So and I'll tell you what, after I did the application, had the first interview, I'd already it was a win win for me. I it was it was that experience was so incredible. I'd grown so much just in that process. Um everything after that was just a, a bonus. And my head's still spinning from from the things that I experienced and I'm still still working through it. It's wow, <laughs> unbelievable. And I presume it's one of those things where it just keeps popping up and influencing your life in all sorts of ways from here on in as well. Yeah. I don't know if it should be called an Uffield scholarship. It should be called an Uffield network or an Uffield family. So you become a part of this big family and, and um, you know, I can ring anybody in the world and, and um, talk to them about challenges or joys or problems and and they will respond to me at a whole different level because um, of this network that, that I've become a part of. And, you know, it's just pretty special. It's, and I'd never thought I'd be part of that or that I was even close to being good enough to doing it. And certainly when I was writing my report, I certainly didn't think I was, I was good. And I'm very dyslexic and I struggled a lot. Um, but, um, yeah, we got through it. So one question I ask, Fritz, and I think it's probably a really good conduit to bring it in, is I think there's such an opportunity for us to share more about why people should pursue a career in agriculture, especially when they're in those kind of key years. And I'll choose year 10 for it. But if you were to choose a classroom full of year 10 students, 
What would you say to them about why they should consider a career in agriculture? I think I'd ask them first what they know or what they think about agriculture. And I think the answer would be, oh, you just you do long hours and you get dirty and you have to deal with drought and all this negativity. And then I'd enlighten the year 10s that I think agriculture is going to be, like we are the guardians of land and water. Agriculture is sacred work, but it's also the variability of work we do and, the, and especially the change that's going to happen in agriculture or has happened in agriculture is incredible. So it's a lot about how to apply new technology. And you know, I think in the next five or 10 years, there's going to be a lot of autonomous vehicles on farm and we're going to have people sitting in offices with screens operating 50 swarm bots going up and down. So I think I would say to those future leaders, you know, consider agriculture because it's actually a lot more than what you think. There's a lot more technology and a lot more joy. It's also working with soil and, and sun and water and then producing something. Wow, it's so incredible. Look, I'm a farmer because I love planting seed and seeing it germinate. I can't sell a thing. I hate writing invoices. I, I hate it. I just I can't do it. I need help. It's stupid. But seeing crops come up out of the ground or seeing crops grow is so incredible. And to be part of that, it's really beautiful and with endless opportunities. For sure. And and the part I love how you started that response was that you said you'd ask first as well, which I think is just so important. Understand where they're at and then show them. Because as you kind of said, that ag has so many of these solutions and options for them. It's just understanding well. With all, all those options, how do you actually find the ones that they're going to care about? And that's how you get, yeah. get there by asking. Yeah. Well, Fritz, thank you so much for joining us for a chat. I've really enjoyed it. And this one will go to, go to air early in 2024 and we're back underway for another year. Cool. I've really enjoyed it too, Ollie. And if you ever make it up here, try and come up in the wet season when the waterfalls are flowing. It, it'll blow your mind. We'd love to show you some of that. Mate, as we started off, I was like, as you talking about the build up to the wet i was like you know what maybe i should just put it on my bucket list and and get up there and spend a month in the nitty-gritty of the wet season just as it's brutally yeah hot humid but also incredible with the storms and everything else that comes to life yeah come when the when there's storms you don't want to be here in the build-up when it's just hot and humid it's really incredible you're you're when it's a build-up everybody's they're down and out we all are it's everything's hard and then it starts raining, and within seconds, everybody's joyful. It's a miracle. And <laughs> it's still, every time it blows me away when I see it, and I, I see it all the time, of course, but I just can't, can't get enough of it. Well, I'll get up there soon. If it's not fed this year or next year, it'll be the one after. Yeah, cool. Perfect, Fritz. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for another episode from us here at Humans of Agriculture. We hope you're enjoying these podcasts and, well, if you're not, let us know. Hit us up at hello at humansofagriculture.com. Get in touch with any guest recommendations, topics or things you'd like us to talk and get curious about. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, rate, subscribe, review it. Any feedback is absolutely awesome and we really do welcome it. So look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane. We'll see you next time.